Good morning, friends. Um, I'm not preaching in my regular places today, so this is being recorded in the friendly confines. Uh, this is the third part in the series of messages from 1 John. Today I am calling it Sense and Nonsense, and it's from 1 John chapter 4, verse 8. And I'd like to begin my message with a simple observation. It's this. No attribute of God is so widely believed as the love of God. You see, people who never go to church and never read their Bibles know that God is love. I mean, even unbelievers know God is love. Atheists know it. Followers of other religions know it. They may not fully believe it, but they have heard it said so many times that when they think of God, they think of his love. However, that's not the whole story. I'd like to suggest that no attribute of God has been so badly misunderstood as God's love. After all, this sermon is called Sense and Nonsense. In putting it the matter that way, I'm not arguing that God's love is the least known attribute, only that what most people believe about God's love is quite simply not true at all. Because they know part of the truth, they assume they know it all. And in this case, a little knowledge is definitely a dangerous thing. I want to begin our journey this morning to understand something about what it means to say that God is love. And I'm going to draw on one of my my favorite uh, authors, Christian authors, J.I. Packer. And he uses a wonderful image to speak of God's love. And it goes something like this. When we study God's wisdom, we learn about his mind. When we study God's power, we learn about his arm. When we study God's knowledge, we learn about his eyes. When we study God's word, we learn about his mouth. When we study God's love, we learn about his heart, and we shall stand on holy ground. We need the grace of reverence that we may tread it without sin. Now, that comes from his great book called Knowing God. Now, today I want to just talk a little bit about four wrong ideas about God's love and then four correct ideas. So wrong idea number one is the idea that God loves every person in exactly the same way. Now, I think we all assume this is true, but it is not. A moment's thought, however, will show us how unreasonable that notion is. We often use the word love in many ways, and we, in fact, love in diverse ways. For example, I love my wife, I love my baby, I love my biscuits dipped in gravy. Well, there you have three different uses of the word love in the same sentence. Married love is not the same as love of your children, and loving your food is something entirely different, yet the same word is used of all three. From a biblical point of view, we may say that God loves the world, but lavishes love on his children. Now, theologians use the word sovereign to describe God's love, and by that they mean that God shows love as he chooses to show love. Since no one has a claim on God's love, no one can complain if God chooses to express his love towards someone else differently than he has shown it to you. Now, wrong idea number two. Some people mistakenly believe God's love somehow cancels his holiness. Unbelievers often think this way. Uh, Many have the idea that when they reach heaven, God is going to kind of smile at them, shuffle his feet, and say, well, you don't deserve it, but aw shucks, come on in anyway. Unfortunately, that view has nothing at all to commend itself to us. Whatever else we may say, this much is certain. God's love is not benevolent softness because God cannot overlook sin. He'll never contradict his own nature. Behind this wrong idea is the perverted view of love that says, if you love me, you'll accept anything I do. Wrong. Love makes judgment calls. Love cares about right and wrong. That's why parents spank their children. 
That's why God kind of spanks us as well. God's love is holy love. His love is built upon his holiness and could not exist apart from it. Wrong idea number three is growing more and more popular, even in some evangelical circles. It's the idea that God's love means that everyone will one day be saved. Well, this is the heresy of universalism. While it sounds attractive, it is completely at odds with the Bible. I mean, after all, Scripture says not everyone who says, I love the Lord, or I'm a believer, is going to heaven. I mean, hell is going to be filled with a lot of religious people of all varieties. And that fact, that idea is contradicted by Jesus himself in Matthew chapter 25, verse 46, where he says, they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Now, the wrong idea, number four, is that God is love means the same as love is God. Now, the first part is certainly true. God is love, as 1 John 4, 8 plainly states. Love is at the core of God's being. It is that which causes him to reach out to save guilty sinners. But the second part, love is God, is manifestly untrue. Not all love is of God. I mean, men love darkness rather than light, and that is not of God. Some people love murder and rape. That's not of God. Some people love deception and violence. That's not of God. To say love is God is at best misleading. At at worst, it's New Age pantheism. So just what is the love of God? Well, reading what theologians say about it can leave you confused and depressed, and quite honestly, sometimes it just gives me a headache. But just because we can't define it simply, that doesn't mean that God's love doesn't exist. After all, who can properly define the love between a man and a woman or between a parent and a child? Now, I'm tempted to say that I don't know what God's love is, but I know it when I see it. And perhaps that's not far from the truth. We can boil it down this way. Human love generally is a response to conditions and circumstances around us. We love because someone pleases us or because they seem attractive or because they pay attention to us or because they make us laugh or because we feel fulfilled when we're with them. By contrast, God's love is utterly uncaused. He loves because, well, that's just the kind of God he is. Nothing in us causes him to love us. Not our beauty, our wealth, not our wisdom or good deeds or good looks, and and certainly, certainly not our promise to love him back. You see, our love is conditional and often temporary. God's love is unconditional, uncaused, and eternal. It is utterly unlike human love even though our love may be a dim reflection of his. Now, a key passage in the New Testament on God's love is found in Romans chapter 5, verses 6 to 8. And here Paul focuses on the death of Jesus as the supreme manifestation of God's love. This is the way that verse reads. You see, at just the right time, while we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now, we we discover two vital truths in these verses. First of all, the truth about who we are. Verse 6 says we are powerless and ungodly. To be powerless means we could not change our basic nature. Ungodly means that we have no desire to change in the first place. And then verse 8 adds that we are sinners, desperately in need of a change that we couldn't effect and didn't want anyway. i tell you, friends, no more hopeless situation could be imagined. So, powerless, ungodly, sinners. Not a very pretty list, is it? 
But those three words describe what you were by nature from the moment you were born. In fact, from the moment you were conceived. Uh, they also describe the spiritual state of every person in the world who's apart from Jesus, the Messiah. This is God's judgment on the entire human race. No one is excluded. I mean, search the four corners of the globe and you find no exceptions to the truth. Not only are all men sinners, but all men by nature are powerless, ungodly, and enemies of God. And may I say that it doesn't matter whether you accept this truth or not. These things are true without regard to your opinion or my opinion. Now, you may say I'm not ungodly or I'm not God's enemy or even I know lots of people who are worse sinners than I am. But friends, God's word simply washes away those limp objections. This is the truth about you as you stand on your own before God apart from divine grace. This truth leaves us with no hope in ourselves. Now, you might somehow reverse one or two of these facts, but no one can escape all of them. As a result, you are utterly unable to save yourself. Your condition is hopeless apart from Jesus. Now, we may therefore draw one major conclusion from all of us, and it's this. God's love is not dependent on anything in you because there is nothing in you worth loving. That is, there's nothing in you that forces God to love you. It's not that you are such a naturally lovable person. You aren't, and neither am I. I mean, sin has infected your life so that it has distorted, destroyed even the parts of you that you believe to be beautiful. Well, sin uglifies. I don't know if that's a word, but I just made it up anyway. Sin uglifies everything it touches. Sin has made us so ugly that God finds nothing in us that forces him to love us. There is then no reason for God to love us. No reason except this. That's the kind of God he is. He loves you and me because God is love and he can't help loving us even when we are his enemies. His love is both greater than our sin and despite our sin. God shouldn't love us, but he does. And this is the wonder of the ages, that God would love his sworn enemies. Now, someone might find this point very discouraging because we all like to think of ourselves as naturally lovable. Now, I'd reply that God is very comforting. If God loves you only when you're lovable, then when you stop being, what happens when you stop being lovable? God would have to stop loving you. Where would you be then? No, it's better to admit the truth. God loves us despite our unloveliness. That means that God's love is sure and certain because it doesn't depend on anything you say or do. There's a second point about these verses. They reveal the amazing extent of God's love. See, now we turn to God's incredible solution for man's impossible problem. Verses 7 and 8 reveal the unearthly nature of God's love. His solution to our problem is so unusual that it goes far beyond human reason. We never think this up. We never think this up on our own. Only God could. So two statements kind of summarize this truth. Statement number one, he went far beyond what we would do. Verse 7 of Romans says, Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. Now here's a good question for you to discuss over lunch today. How many people are you willing to die for? I mean, if the chips were down and you had to decide, how many people would you be willing to lay your life down for? Now, as I thought about it, my list is well, pretty small. In the first place, you never know until the moment comes and you pray never to be put in that agonizing position. But what if you were? Our text is telling us that all of us would die for a few other people, you know, close friends, family members, people we greatly admire. But even that would be kind of rare. Let's admit it, the circle is very small. 
To be honest, there are many people you love dearly, but you're not sure you'd be willing to take a bullet for them. Now, there are some we would die for. There are many more we admire, but probably wouldn't die for. There are others we barely know that we would never even consider dying for. There are millions and billions of others whose lives don't even figure into the equation. But God went far beyond what we would do. We would never think of doing what he did. And here's statement number two. He did what we would never do. Verse 8, God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Well, when we read this verse, we like to emphasize Christ died for us. But I think the emphasis is clearly on the first phrase. While we were still sinners. The wonder is not that Jesus would die for us, though that would be wonderful enough. The wonder is he died for us while we were still sinners, still ungodly, still powerless, and still his enemies. He didn't die for his friends. He died for his enemies. He died for those who crucified him. He died for those who hated him. He died for those who rejected him. He died for those who cheered as the nails were driven into his hands. Friends, we'd never do anything like that. Like I said, we might die for our friends, but never our enemies. But that's what Jesus did for us. The death of Jesus is the conclusive proof of God's love. Now, sometimes in this crazy, mixed-up world, people say, where is the love of God? We see so much killing, heartache, tragedy, so much pain and anger. Where is the love of God? My answer is simply this. Look to the cross. Gaze upon the bleeding form of the Son of God. There you will see the love of God. Let no one who hears these words today ever doubt that God loves them. I mean, does he love you? Yes, he does. He proved it when Jesus died on the cross for you. The New Testament is filled with verses that tell us what the love of God should mean in practical experience. I'm going to mention ten of them, some of perhaps the most famous statements on the subject. And, and one of them is the visible mark of genuine Christian faith. John 13:35. By this will all men know that you are my disciples. See, it's how forgiven sinners can live together in harmony. First Peter 4, 8. Love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. Third is the standard by which Christian husbands will be judged. Ephesians 5:25. Husband loves your wives just as Christ loved the church. It is the great principle of Christian conduct. Galatians 5.13 Do not use your freedom to indulge sinful nature. Rather, serve one another in love. Next one is God's counterbalance against harsh words. Ephesians 4.15 Instead, speaking the truth in love. It's also the supreme motive for sharing Christ with others. 2 Corinthians 5.14 For Christ's love compels us. And 1 John 4.16 is the proof positive that we know God. Whoever lives in love <clears throat> lives in God. It is a path to confident, victorious living. First John 4.18, perfect love drives out fear. It's the sum total of what God demands from us. Romans 13.10, love is the fulfillment of the law. And ending up with the supreme virtue that will last for all eternity. You know this one, 1 Corinthians 13.13. 13. Now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Well, friends, love is truly the language of heaven. It comes from the heart of God. It's poured into the heart of every believer. Love fulfills the law because when we live in love, we're truly living in the essence of God himself. So let me wrap this up with two closing comments about God's love. Number one, all of God's blessings to us flows from his love for us. Salvation, forgiveness, justification, new birth, adoption, sanctification, heaven itself. 
Now, can you be certain that you're going to heaven? Is that possible or is that just wishful thinking? Well, friends, you can be absolutely positively beyond any shadow of doubt certain that you're going to heaven when you die. Why? It's because of your faith caused by the Holy Spirit in Jesus, the Messiah. My second comment is that all of our deepest problems are solved at the cross. For the helpless, he died. For the ungodly, he justified. The sinner, he saved. His enemies, he reconciled. Our impossible problem has been completely solved through the death of Jesus on the cross. Our sins have been forgiven. Our debt completely paid. Our record wiped clean and righteousness has been imputed to our account. The gap that separated us from God has been completely bridged. We who were once far away have been brought near. We who were sinners have now become the friends of God. How amazing is the love of God. When all other sounds have been stilled, we'll join the saints and angels throughout eternity in singing of the love of God for sinners like you and like me. Until next time, see the vision, live the mission, and feel the passion.